Well, good morning. Welcome to worship. We're so glad that you are with us. You braved the elements. You made it, which is awesome. So welcome all of you here in the worship center. Also want to welcome anyone over in our chapel, anyone at our Minnetonka campus. And then we know there are those folks who got up, looked out the window, rolled back over and are watching online. And we'll try not to judge you for that. We're just glad that you have tuned in this morning and that you are worshiping wherever you're at. So good to be with you all as we continue on in our series called Living Hope, which is based on the book of First Peter, which is in the New Testament. And we're going to be in this book for the months of January and February. And so if you're here last week, I encouraged you to bring a Bible or at least download the Bible app on your phone, or you can just Google First Peter on your phone and it will take you to a Bible uh, viewing area. So uh, whatever way you want to engage with scripture, I just encourage you to go to First Peter chapter one with me this morning. So underneath the city of Rome, there is a pretty extensive area of catacombs. And originally when they were used, it was for poor people, but it was also for Christians who were hated by the general public. And so these people were not even given a plot of land that could be seen on land surface. Instead, they were made to be buried way down under the city. So when these catacombs were rediscovered and were studied, there was some interesting observations that were made. First, there were a bunch of buried Christians, and they could tell because there were all sorts of different signs of hope on the graves. Sometimes it was a carved picture. And one of my favorites is there was a picture of a shepherd carrying a sheep because it's this incredible hope that we have that the good shepherd will carry us who are the sheep home in the end. There are also a lot of different Bible passages and verses that spoke to the hope that we have and the confidence that we can have in Jesus. But then there were other graves that were found down in these catacombs of pagans. And these graves were much, much different than the Christian graves. There were no signs that would signify any hope at all. In fact, one of these pagan graves had a pretty extensive inscription on it, and it was translated to say this. It starts out by saying, live for the present hour, since we are sure of nothing else. It starts out pretty hauntingly. And it goes on to say, I lift my hands against the gods who took me away at the age of 20, though I had done no harm. Once I was... Now I am not. I know nothing about it, and it is of no concern of mine. Traveler, curse me not as you pass, for I am in darkness and cannot answer. Now contrast that bleak and hopeless message with the living hope that we can have in Jesus. See, the haunting but true reality is that anyone apart from Christ essentially is without eternal hope. And what we're seeing in 1 Peter is that because of what Jesus has done, because of God's promises and his initiative in our life, we have access to a living 
hope. That means it's not a hope that comes and goes. It's not a hope that is sometimes available and sometimes not, or a hope that we have to somehow achieve. Instead, it's a living, constant hope that comes through Jesus. It really changes everything. So last week, if you were with us, we looked at just the first five verses of 1 Peter And what we see right away is that Peter wants to remind us of one of the most important things we can do as we go through this life is to remember who we are. It's easy to get sidetracked, to start to wonder what our actual identity is, to have self-doubt, or maybe on the other hand, to think we have to figure out everything on our own. And Peter right away wants to remind us that one, we are chosen by God that God took the first step, that he takes the initiative in our lives, and that makes a huge difference. But he also calls us foreigners or exiles. And that means as we make our way through our earthly life, we're not gonna always feel at home because we weren't made for this. We were made for God's presence. And that means sometimes as we live out our faith, we're gonna feel on the outside. We're not gonna feel at home And that is normal. We are chosen foreigners, chosen exiles. But because of that reality and because we're in Christ, we also have incredible promises. And so today I want to pick up where we left off, starting in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm going to read verses 6 to 9, and then we're going to go back and look at each verse Um, after. So starting in verse six, it says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So right away, In verse six, there is this contradiction between suffering grief and experiencing all kinds of trials, but also greatly rejoicing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about suffering, when I think about trials, I don't naturally then think about greatly rejoicing kind of sounds ridiculous. It kind of sounds confusing. We wonder, you know, is Peter crazy? Is he delirious? Is he trying to set us up to be masochists or something like that? I mean, why should we rejoice when we experience loss or hardship or struggle or suffering in life? That sounds absolutely terrible. But here's the thing. There's some key words right off the bat, and the key words are in all this. In all this, well, then you are able to rejoice even suffering and even amidst trials. But what is in all this referring to, Peter? Well, what he's talking about is everything that we have read up until this point, the first five verses that we looked at last 
week, namely the promises that we're reminded of that God bestows on us. Now, when we go back and we look at verses three to five, these incredible promises that we covered last week, what I love about them is that they're all about what we have experienced, but also what we will experience and what we're experiencing now. It's every part of our existence. You see, it starts out by saying, he, God has given us a new birth into a living hope. That's something that happened in the past already. It's a reminder that even all the things that you have already faced in your life, God has been with you and he has brought you through. But then he says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. We have this heavenly inheritance that we will one day experience. And what that means is we have a future hope. And it's a reminder that no matter what you're facing, God will bring you through it. But not only that, then it says, we are also shielded by God's power in the present. And so whatever your experience is today, whatever your struggle is that you are currently facing, God's got you. He's with you. He's at work no matter what. So basically God is saying through Peter to us, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what will happen someday down the line, no matter what's going on in your life right now, I've got you, I'm with you. And I've got you all the way safely home because of what Jesus has already done. You see, that is the foundation that we stand on. That is the starting point. It's not something we aspire to. It's not something we have to figure out or a code to crack or something to be earned. It's the foundation that we are given in Christ. It's a living hope. And this is precisely what we cannot forget when the struggles and the trials, and yes, even the suffering of life rise up. It's because of these promises of who God is and what God has promised to do. It's in this amazing reality and confidence that we are even able to rejoice even in the storm. We can rejoice no matter what our current circumstances are. We can even praise God in the fire. Now, I remember when my son Soren was just a little kid and he had to have quite a few doctor's visits and almost at every one of these doctor's visits, he had to have a blood draw. And you know, no little kid likes to see a big needle coming at them, right? So it was kind of a traumatic thing. But something you need to know about Soren is he was highly motivated by stickers. Like he loves stickers no matter where we would go. He'd just wear them around. We have pictures from when he was like two, three, four years old. He almost always had some sort of sticker on. I remember the first time we brought him to the nursery at the first church that I served and they would put a name tag on all the kids' backs, you know, so they couldn't access it, but they would know who all the kids were. Well, we went to pick him up after church and he had like 14 different name tags on because he just saw them as collecting stickers. So when we would go and have these blood draws, we would remind him that there was a sticker on the horizon and it made such a difference. He convinced himself that it didn't hurt. It wasn't a big deal. He would call it just a little poke. Be like, all right, a little poke and I get my sticker. 
You see, he chose to focus on a future promise over the present pain. You know, the sting and the pain of suffering in our lives, it feels different when you not just look to the present, but you look to the future. It reminds me of a phrase I heard in a sermon one time that I really appreciated, which said, future focus gives you present power. Future focus gives you present power. You know, Jesus even modeled this in his own life. The book of Hebrews said that he went to the cross, but he was looking forward. It says, for the joy set before him, knowing this was not the end, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Can you imagine a more painful thing to anticipate, to know you're about to be nailed to a cross? Jesus knew what was coming, but he was able to endure the pain He was even able to have joy in the moment because of the future promise. He knew what he was about to achieve. Future focus gives present power. Now, I think what this also means is that we can actually prepare and train for the suffering and the trials that we will certainly face in our life. We can actually be proactive as followers of Jesus, and we can learn and practice and memorize and walk in the promises and the truth of God that will help us to live a countercultural and a supernatural existence, which is actually full of joy despite suffering. You know, it's actually one of my jobs as a pastor here at Calvary to help prepare God's people to face suffering and trials and pain, to actually prepare you for losing a loved one or facing financial hardship or walking through relational brokenness or even betrayal or to deal with a devastating diagnosis. Now, I really wish that I could just come up here and say, if you follow Jesus, well, then everything's going to be fine. Like everything will be rosy, positive. You can just skate by until one day you go to heaven. But you know, that's just not the world we live in, right? We all know this to be true. Jesus never promised that everything would be okay. In fact, just the opposite. He told us in this world, you will have trouble. It wasn't even like you might have trouble or, you know, like if you have bad luck, you know, things might not work out the way you want. No, he says you will have trouble. It's a promise. And again, it's consistent with our experience, right? And so what I want you to hear this morning is that pain and struggle and trials are not abnormal. They're not atypical. They're not a sign that you somehow have fallen off or that you are somehow irredeemable or that you're beyond hope. And it doesn't mean you have to put on a happy face and pretend that everything is okay like we often feel like we need to when we come to a church. You know, some seasons of our life are just going to be hard and painful and difficult. But the good news is you're not alone. No, God meets you in your pain. And also we're called to come alongside each other to help lift each other up and to remind each other of our reality that we have through Jesus. 
Now, for the Christians in Peter's time who are living scattered throughout Asia Minor, kind of modern-day Turkey, they're facing a very specific time of suffering because the Roman Empire is cracking down and persecuting Christians. And so Peter talks about suffering, but in a very general way. He says all kinds of trials and suffering, or sometimes it's translated as various kinds of of trials and suffering. But the actual Greek word here is best translated as many colored. You know, it's not a very precise uh, description. Instead, it's an all-encompassing description because Peter himself knew a very wide variety of suffering and trials in his life. In much the same way, the trials that you and I face in this broken world today are of every shade and hue and color. And you know, some of the trials and suffering that you are facing in this room are evident to others. You've brought other people in to your struggle. But there are other trials and other pain and other suffering in this room that are completely hidden. Like it completely horrifies you to think of anyone else knowing what you're going through. You know, in a church as large as ours, I can't even begin to know and address and understand all the shades of struggle and pain that are represented within our congregation. I can't begin to imagine the depths of grief and pain and struggle that we've all faced. And it's to that same reality with this full breadth of pain and hardship trial and struggle that Peter says, fellow followers of Jesus, there is still a joy that you can live and experience, even despite the struggles, the suffering, and the pain of life. In fact, Peter doubles down on this idea in verse eight, and he calls it inexpressible and glorious joy. It's not just bucking up and forcing a smile. It's not pretending like everything is all right. No, this is a real and deep and tangible joy that's anchored and rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a huge difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is just a feeling and it's fleeting and it's dependent on our current circumstances, but joy is something that lasts because it's rooted in something deeper. So the question today is how can we begin to rejoice in our suffering? How can we truly experience what Peter calls inexpressible joy? And I think Peter's gonna give us some very compelling reasons that we're able to do this. Now, first, as we have already talked about, we can rejoice because the glory of verses three to five outweighs the trials of verses six to seven. The glory that's described in verses three to five outweighs the trials that Peter's now talking about in verses six To seven, in his great mercy, God has resurrected us from death and united us to a living hope. We have a promised inheritance 
through Jesus that will never spoil or fade. So the question is, what earthly trial can outweigh the promises of verses three to five? Could a financial downturn outweigh this eternal inheritance? Could a terminal diagnosis outweigh the living hope we have in Jesus? Could losing your job outweigh the reality of a new birth through Christ? You know, it's really the same theme that the apostle Paul picked up on in Romans chapter eight, when he says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. It's kind of a first century list of trials. We might update them to a lot of different things, but can any of these things separate us from our living hope? Is there anything that we can face in our everyday life that outweighs the glory and the promise of God? Well, Paul answers by saying there's nothing Nothing at all that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I think that's a really great place to start when we start to think about how we can rejoice even in our suffering. Now, number two, Peter says we can rejoice because trials are temporary, but joy is forever. In verse six, he says, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer for a little while. So what does Peter mean by that? What does he consider a little while? Is he saying, you know, our hard times should just last a couple days or a few hours? Well, obviously not, right? What Peter's doing is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4.17, when he says, your life is a light momentary affliction, See, basically he's saying, yes, you're going to have trials. There will be suffering, but it's going to last 70, 80, 90 years tops. And you might think, well, Peter, that's not a little while. That's a long, long, long while. But again, Peter chooses his words on purpose. And he's not trying to be imprecise. He's talking about a little while when compared to eternity. Now, have you ever seen a mayfly before? The lifespan of a mayfly is 24 hours. So imagine being a mayfly who has a bad day. Like, huge bummer, right? Imagine talking to a mayfly who says, you know, man, it's been a tough season. There was this gust of wind that came off, totally knocked me off course, and it lasted for five seconds. It seemed like an eternity, You know, to a mayfly, a five-second battle with a gust of wind is like a bad year for us. It's exactly what Peter is saying when he says our trials are just for a little while. As hard as it is in the moment, we need to have an eternal perspective in light of God's promises. Remember, as we were told in verse four, we have an eternal inheritance that will never spoil and never fade and will never go away. Our trials that we experience today are just a blip on the timeline of eternity. Number three, Peter says we can rejoice because there is purpose in our pain. There is purpose in our pain. 
Okay, so God has purpose for the pain and the suffering that we face. So does that make him a cosmic torturer? Like, why would he allow suffering? I get that Jesus had to suffer, but why do we have to suffer? We'll look at verse seven. It says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, there's a testing and a refining and a strengthening that goes on here. God doesn't cause all of our suffering and pain, but he is able to redeem it and use it. Now, Satan wants to use the trials and the pain of our life to try to discourage us, to try to frustrate us, to try to knock us off course, but God uses them to strengthen, to refine, to draw us into a closer relationship with him. And Peter says, this is worth more than gold. Now, have you ever seen raw gold before? The ore that is mined. Raw gold needs to be smelted and melted. Now, the smelting process removes all the impurities that are there. And they take the raw ore, they heat it up to 3,000 plus degrees. And in the process, then, all of the impurities in the gold are burned off. But after that, when it cools down, all you have is a shapeless blob of gold. What good is that? So you send it off to a foundry to be shaped and melted into whatever form you want so that it can accomplish whatever purpose you have for it. So Peter is writing, knowing that suffering is coming for his readers. Under Emperor Nero, who was over the Roman Empire, one of the worst persecutors of Christians in all of history, but Peter knows that there's going to be a time of smelting. It's going to be a time of testing that will remove impurities. You see, God is able to use trials to remove pride, to remove ego, control, worry, fear from our lives. As we go through trials, these kinds of things are burned off. But then he also is shaping us into the image of Christ, making us into a vessel that will bring him glory and will further his mission on earth. It's really what happened in Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph suffered greatly because of the jealousy of his brothers. Remember, they sold him into slavery he ended up in Egypt, he was imprisoned, he was falsely accused of rape. But in the end, when he faced his brothers, he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good and for the saving of many lives. Joseph faced the fire. He was experiencing God's smelting and melting and he was formed into a vessel was able to further God's mission. And when he looked back, he saw God's hand turning his pain into something valuable. You know, the thing is, only God can do that. We can't do it alone. 
And when we realize his goodness and his power and how he's working, even in the hard and tough situations of life, well, it causes our faith to be strengthened and it causes us to grow in our trust of him so that we can be like Jesus. When Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Or like Job in the Old Testament, when he faced all sorts of suffering, eventually he tore his clothes and he put ashes on his head and he fell to the ground and he worshiped God. And even despite deep desperation, he chose to worship. And he said, the Lord gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because Job knew God had not abandoned him. God wasn't just playing with him. He wasn't asleep at the wheel. He wasn't enjoying his pain. Job knew we live in a fallen and a broken world. And he chose to trust God through it all. He said, my life is in your hands. Your will be done. I'm gonna choose to praise amidst the storm. Charles Spurgeon was a powerful preacher in the 1800s. And there's a quote that's attributed to him that says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Spurgeon begins by saying, I have learned because this is not our natural response to embrace pain and struggle. But here he's saying, I've learned to embrace, to appreciate, to even welcome those difficult seasons of life because they can bring me closer to my Lord than anything else. I mean, the truth is, it's not our natural inclination to be dependent on God every day. It's just not. When things are going well, when everything's firing on all cylinders, we start to live under the illusion that we can do it alone, that we're in control, that we've got enough talent and ability to get by. And so God uses trials. He uses hardship to bring us back into a rightful place with him so that we're completely dependent and connected to our savior and our Lord. So let me ask you, have you experienced this before in your life? Let me tell you in 20 plus years of ministry, I've had so many conversations with people who have been through the hardest things and they would never say like they want to experience it again. like, give me that hard thing again. But they have an incredible perspective where they say, in that season that was so difficult, my faith grew. It's more vibrant than ever. I experienced the reality of the goodness of God like never before. So have you experienced God's provision and his goodness and his presence even in the struggles and the trials of your life. Well, Peter says this process, it's not easy for sure, but what it does is it results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed at the final revelation, the second coming, when Jesus comes again, praise, glory, and honor. What he's referring to is God saying to us, well done, good and faithful servants. Remember when I said a future focus gives us power in the present. Future focus gives us present power. 
in the midst of your suffering, fix your eyes on the good news that Jesus is coming again. That is where our future hope lies. That is what our faith is ultimately about. Your hope is in the coming of Jesus Christ to put everything back together again. And until that day, keep the faith. Let God continue to build you up and to strengthen you. Now, I remember back teaching my kids to ride their bike. And I don't know if you had a similar experience with your kids, but my kids seemed intent on looking down as they were learning to ride their bike. They, they were looking at the ground. They were looking at their feet. They were looking at the pedals. But the problem is if you're looking down when you're learning to ride a bike, it makes you wobble, right? And so again and again, I had to remind them, look up, but keep pedaling. Look up and keep pedaling. And you know what? I think Jesus is saying that to you and to me today. Look up and keep pedaling. Don't stop and look at all of the worry and the stress and be paralyzed with fear. Look up at the promise that Jesus is coming again. Keep on pedaling with me because I've got you. Fourth and finally, we can rejoice because of our love for Jesus. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So again, Peter's writing to these believers who are scattered throughout the Roman empire. And he's saying, you've never even seen Jesus, but I have, I saw him resurrected. I saw him during his ministry. I talked with him. I saw him ascend into heaven, but you've never seen him and yet you still love him. You've never seen him and yet you still believe in him. And this is not a historical belief like, yeah, I, I believe he existed. This is believing on him for your salvation, trusting him for the forgiveness of your sins, believing that he is who he said he is. And Peter is saying, now let me understand, let me help you understand what's truly happening. Let me connect the dots. So look at verse nine. He says, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When you love and believe in Jesus, this is proof of your salvation. It's proof of your identity, that you have been born again into Christ. You love and believe in him, even though you've never seen him in person and watching the chosen doesn't count. It might kind of look like him, but you have not seen him yet. You love and believe him. And that's not an insignificant thing. It's not the way of culture to believe that this man physically walked the earth who was God and he was crucified and he was buried and he rose again from the dead. You love him, even though you've never met him, you believe in him, even though you've never met him. And so he's saying to you and to me, when you love and believe in Jesus, it's proof of your salvation. It's proof of your new identity. When you ever start to doubt your faith, when you ever start to doubt your identity or the promises of God or your inheritance you have, Peter's saying, come back here. Come back to the basics. 
believe and love Jesus. It's a reason to rejoice even in the hardest times of life. So church, listen, are you suffering? Do you have suffering in your life? Well, whether it's right now or in the recent past or the distant past, or maybe you're coming right around the corner, truth is all of us do and all of us will. It's an unfortunate certainty of life. So what would Peter say to us? Well, I think he'd look you straight in the eyes as one who also suffered greatly. And he would say, don't despair. Don't give up. Don't think your father has left you or he hates you. No, he's at work even in this. He's proving out your faith. He's producing something in you more valuable than gold. And he's with you. Jesus, who suffered for you, is with you. He's bringing you safely through to the day when the outcome of that trial-proved faith will be revealed in a glorious salvation. So don't despair, but instead believe. But not only that, you have a reason to rejoice. Let's pray. Gracious God, only you know all the depths of pain and suffering and trials and hardships that are represented in our worship environments and with the people watching online. God, you know every detail of our lives and you've never left us. You promised to be with us till the end of the age. And so God, my prayer is that through your Holy Spirit's power, we would be reminded of our identity, that we would be reminded of your promises, that when we keep our eyes on you, we can have hope in the present. God, we thank you for the living hope that we have in Jesus. We give you thanks that you can bring purpose out of even the most painful circumstances. And we give you thanks that you are Lord over all, every part of our life and every part of our world. And so instead of walking in fear or anxiety, we can walk in hope and we can rejoice in you. And so God, we thank and praise you for who you are. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And let's all say together, amen.